Sarah's Bookshelves Live. I'm Sarah of Sarah's Bookshelves. Each week, I talk with a bookish guest about two old books they love, two new books they love, one book they do not love, and one new release they're excited about. We're going to get real and sometimes a bit snarky about all things books. If you like the show, I'd love it if you follow the show in your podcast player, spread the word to your reader friends, post about it on your social media, or support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash Sarah's Bookshelves. Supporting the show on Patreon gets you access to bonus podcast episodes and lots of other goodies. There's also a link in the show notes and in my Instagram bio. Let's get rolling. Welcome to our first annual State of the Industry episode with two-time podcast guest, literary agent, Sarah Landis. Sarah first joined us earlier this year as our expert for our Fantasy Speculative Fiction 101 episode. And she had so much fascinating behind-the-scenes insight about the industry in general that we decided to make her an annual guest. As a literary agent, Sarah represents a wide range of fiction from middle grade to adult. Her clients' novels have received a variety of accolades, including Barnes & Noble and Reese's Book Club selections, and have appeared on the New York Times and USA Today bestseller list, as well as international bestseller lists around the globe. Before joining Sterling Lord Literistic in 2017, Sarah worked as an editor for 15 years, holding roles at G.P. Putnam's, Hyperion Books, HarperCollins Children's Books, and Houghton Mifflin Harcourt Books for Young Readers. Welcome, Sarah. Welcome back, Sarah, I should say. Oh, thank you. Happy to be back. And for those of you that did not hear Sarah's earlier episode from earlier this year, I should also say that you and I went to college together. We have known each other for quite a long time. We have. And you were married to somebody in my grade in college. I am. And your sister lives right behind me. She does. (laughs) Our backyards back up to each other. So yeah, there we have it. All right. So what is State of the Industry episode? I should probably talk about this because we have never done this before. State of the Industry is sort of like the State of the Union address, except for publishing. We're going to take stock of how 2023 was for books and for the publishing industry. We're going to talk about how 2023 has been for publishing at a pretty high level. We're going to talk about the year's biggest publishing stories. We're going to play something I'm calling the over-under game, which is where we talk about how particular books performed against publisher expectations. And this is something that Sarah and I sort of did off the cuff in the superlatives bonus episode for patrons the last time she came on. And it was really fun. We had not planned that. And now we're doing it in a little more planned way. We're going to talk about the bookish trends of the year. And then finally, Sarah is going to share her favorite books of 2023. All right. So let's start out high level. How has 2023 been for publishing? So it has been, I would say, a year of upheaval with the merger and the strike and things that your average reader wouldn't know about, but all of these supply chain challenges. You may have noticed that the price of books has gone up. Oh, no, I hadn't. Oh, yeah, by at least a dollar, two dollars. And that's dealing with the paper factories. So they have consolidated and it's been kind of a crazy year from my seat, but things seem to have settled down a bit. And as I was thinking about this podcast and looking at numbers, overall sales numbers are about the same as last year. Oh, interesting. Okay. And how does that compare to the pandemic sales numbers? Are we sort of course correcting back to normal now or are we still up there? We are. We are course correcting. Yeah. Pandemic numbers were way up. People were home. People were buying books. So it's sort of back to pre-pandemic levels. But good pre-pandemic levels. But good pre-pandemic levels. Nonfiction is down and fiction is way up. Wait, what? With Spare and with Britney? Oh, yeah. Wow. It'll be interesting to see what happens with Britney. Yeah. Britney's just very newly out. Brittany is very newly out. She has already sold a million copies. Now, will those sales sort of drop off a cliff now that all the spoilers are out there? Maybe. But the fiction that's up, it's commercial fiction. It's romance. Those are the big sellers of the year. And romanticy. Romanticy. And it's books like Lessons in Chemistry that's still outselling everyone. Oh, really? 
Yes. Now that the show has come out, it keeps going. It's still in hardcover. It has sold over 1.5 million hardcover copies. I am so happy for Bonnie Garmus. She came on the show. She was lovely. I'm so happy that that book is the one that's carrying over still. I agree. I agree. It's a good one. It's worthy. Yeah. And I like the show too. So I have not watched the show yet. I heard that she doesn't like the show. Oh, really? I did. Interesting. Okay. I like it. I think they did a couple interesting things. I did hear it's different than the book. It is different than the book. It's a little more serious. Interesting. Well, gosh, now I want to have Bonnie Garmus back on. <laughs> yeah, take her. She'll probably, I mean, she's very outspoken. She'll tell you what she thinks. Yeah. Yeah, she was a great guest. All right. What else? And then I was going to say book talk books like Colleen Hoover and Hannah Grace, those have really been selling that romance category that publishers really hadn't been paying a lot of attention to. Right. So that's kind of fun. I keep telling people it's like democratizing book publishing, that it's all of these categories that maybe had been underserved. Absolutely. And giving regular readers a voice in sort of telling publishers what they want to read rather than having books forced upon you. (laughs) Exactly. Which is still happening. Of course. Of course. I mean, I just tried to 700-page literary tomes that didn't work for me and have gotten a gazillion marketing dollars behind them. (laughs) And then for nonfiction, I really think the prescriptive fiction has moved on to TikTok and Instagram. So that has been the one category that I think is really down. That's so interesting. Yeah, you're getting all this advice online, so maybe you weren't buying the book. Oh, I see what you're saying. So are you talking about like sort of self-helpy type books? Yes, exactly. And now you have your gurus that you can follow on Instagram and TikTok. You don't have to buy their books. Yeah. But influencer type books too that were doing really well like a couple years ago are not doing as well. Interesting. Okay. Any other high level observations before we get on to kind of specific stories going on this year? I will say the biggest surprise, which you mentioned, has been Fourth Wing. Yes. And I'm a fantasy reader. You know I love fantasy. Yes. Did you personally like Fourth Wing? I did. Yes. I really liked it. I mean, for something like that to go mainstream from a very niche publisher, they don't have a New York office. They don't even have a big staff. They don't have a big distribution. That was clear. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think it even took them by surprise. It did. Yeah. You know, they did print 100,000 copies and they did these beautiful, like, stained edges and packaging. The dragons on the edges. Yeah. But that's a case where you saw something like social media and Amazon moving a book. I mean, BNN was much later to the party. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. See, it's funny. This was one of the specific stories of the year I was going to ask you about, but we'll just talk about it now. I'm not plugged into the fantasy world. So, I was unaware of this book until I started hearing about the fact that, oh, there's this book with these dragons on the edges and you can't buy it anywhere. Right. It almost like increased demand, right? Uh Uh-huh. Well, I'll give you a perfect example of how it increased demand. Right when I was driving to the airport where I live, I was listening to a book podcast about the fact that there's this romanticy novel that's took off on TikTok and you can't buy it anywhere. And I get to the airport and I go in the little like, you know, the airport bookstore. There are three copies of it in there. (laughs) So you could still get it. I bought all three. You did not. I don't read fantasy that much, (laughs) if at all. Did you think you were going to sell them on the black market or you? (laughs) No, no. I was like, I don't know. Maybe I need to try it. Maybe I need to see what the fuss is about. But I also had two. So one of my co-hosts, Catherine, I knew was looking for one. And then my other friend, Elizabeth Barnhill, who's a bookseller, she is a book buyer at Fable Bookstore in Texas. She couldn't get one. So I mailed it to her. And then I kept one, which I still haven't read. Oh, you should read it. I was like, I'll just, I should probably have this. Maybe it's going to be a collector's item. (laughs) It might be. Yeah. It's very solid fantasy. Now, let me ask you about the sales. Obviously, we know the sales were huge for Fourth Wing and we know that they were unexpected, right? How huge were they in comparison to like, let's say a Lessons in Chemistry? I'm trying to throw out just another big book. 
Well, I mean, I think it'll be the long tail, right? Like, will it continue to sell? I mean, right now they're having midnight parties at Barnes & Noble for the second book. And they very smartly put that second book out six months later. Yep. Sort of knowing maybe this will be ephemeral. <laughs> like Maybe this popularity will die down. There's a five book series planned, correct? There's a five book series planned. And I think every book is coming out every six months. Okay. Book Riot did a great podcast interview with the publisher of Fourth Wing and kind of went behind the scenes of all of this. And in that, they talked about how when they bought Fourth Wing, actually, I should rephrase that because that's not how this book came to be. This book was an IP book. Exactly. She has written a number of other books. Romance. Yes. So for for my listeners who are not familiar with what an IP book is, I just became familiar with this a little bit before Fourth Wing came out. But it's when the publisher identifies a gap in the market and decides they want to publish a book to fill this market gap. And then they find an author to write the book that they want to publish. So it's not like the author brings them a book that the author has written and the publisher buys it. It's like the reverse. It's the reverse. And it's important to remember that the author is still putting their stamp on it. Like, I think she took a very loose idea and then turned it into something great. But also the IP, the downside with IP is oftentimes you don't have the film rights. Oh. So I'm curious. I don't know what her deal is. But if you sell a book as an IP, you are selling away a lot of those rights. When you say you, do you mean the author is? The author. Okay. So does the publisher own the rights? The publisher owns the rights. Well, that's a boon for Fourth Wing's publisher and not great for Rebecca Yaris. Yeah, I'm not sure what her deal is. But yeah, for something like this, if a book really takes off, you can stand to make a lot of money on the film side. Yeah. I haven't read the book, but from what I understand, this would be a very dramatic thing to put on the screen, right? Right. I think it has been optioned, but it would be expensive. It would be expensive to make. Oh, yeah. I'm imagining like a Game of Thrones type of thing. Right. House of the Dragon. (laughs) Exactly. Do you think the sales for this series will continue or do you think this is more of a flash in the pan? I don't know. I mean, it has sold 800,000 copies. So clearly those consecutive books will get a piece of that. The first book will always end up selling the best. Five books is a lot to ask a reader to stick with, unless it's Harry Potter or The Hunger Games. So I'm not sure. This will be interesting to see how this pans out. Yeah, I will read the second book. I'm excited to read the second book. It's out already, right? I think it's out. Oh, yeah, it was out on Tuesday. Yeah, because I feel like I've seen people posting about how their pre-order has not arrived yet and stuff like that. I read those books on my Kindle, so I will probably just read it on my Kindle. Sure. So we just kind of got into our next topic accidentally, but talking about some of the biggest stories of the year, obviously fourth wing and the phenomenon that it's become, and I guess the unexpected phenomenon that it's become is one of the biggest stories of the year that I had thought about. So what do you think the biggest stories in publishing are this year? Hmm. I mean, for me, I would say the SNS being acquired by a private equity firm. Yes. And that's Simon & Schuster, which is one of the big five publishers, has been bought by KKR. Right. And then, yeah, so that merger being blocked with Penguin Random House. Right. Which we all felt sort of conflicted about, but it was more the devil you know. For me, it was conflicted because I feel like anytime everything's under one corporation, you sort of get an echo chamber. I think it's good to have diversification there, different business ideas and practices. So that made me nervous to have such a large publisher. But I hope, I hope we are all cautiously optimistic that Simon & Schuster will stay the same. What do you think KKR wants with Simon & Schuster? Because my husband works kind of adjacent to the private equity industry and they want to make money. And publishing is not an industry where the margins are great and the money, the money's rolling in. So like, I'm just curious what do you think KKR kind of thinks they can do with Simon & Schuster? I don't know. I have to think it has to be to do with they want to buy more in media. So maybe this is their foothold. I'm not sure. It's confusing for me too. Yeah. I mean, I think there is new technology all the time, especially with 
though book publishing also is one of those industries where the more things change, the more things stay the same. People still love a physical book. Yep. We're like the last of the technophobes, a lot of us. So I don't know. It could be they're thinking that there'll be new technology that they want to be invested in. I'm not sure. Do you think that regular readers will feel anything from this? No, I don't. I don't think they know. If I did not work in this industry, I never paid attention to publishers at all. No, no one really pays attention to imprints. I mean... No, certainly a regular reader is not like, oh, this book is published by this publisher. And yeah, the average reader who reads 12 books a year. Exactly. I mean, we have a hard enough time trying to get readers to connect the dots with authors. I'm like, buy their third book. You loved their first book. That's interesting. I didn't realize that was a problem. I think there is maybe, except for like some of the thriller writers that everyone will just auto buy. Sure. It's hard to get people to buy someone's second, third novel. Oh, see, I do that all the time. Well, that's good. You should. I realize I'm not the average reader, though. You're not the average reader. Yeah. There's not a ton of author loyalty. That's what we try to do, but it's not always effective. Oh, that's so interesting. Okay. Because I think among the people that listen heavily to my show and tend to be heavy readers, there is a lot of author loyalty. So that's really interesting that among sort of regular day-to-day readers, not high volume. I find there's more reader loyalty when it comes to genre fiction, like thrillers, fantasy, mysteries. Yeah. That kind of thing. Romance. That makes sense, actually. I mean, Emily Henry, I feel like has. Oh my gosh. She has a very loyal following. Yes. I think, I think absolutely. Any other stories you feel like are sort of the biggest things of this year? I mean, we've seen... A lot of social media backlash, but that is all very inside baseball. What I thought the direction you were going in with that was the Elizabeth Gilbert story. Oh, well, that was an interesting one, which people, you would think that there would be more chatter about it, but no one's really talking about that anymore. Really? It sort of came and went. Let me just set this up for our listeners who aren't maybe aren't familiar with what happened, but Elizabeth Gilbert, who is the author of Eat, Pray, Love, the huge memoir way back when, she had written a novel that is set in Russia that is supposed to be coming out in February of 2024. When this book was announced, I guess a lot of people went on to Goodreads and gave it one-star reviews, like tons. Yeah, we call it review bombing. Yes, they call it review bombing. Now it has a name. And now Goodreads has taken some steps to stop review bombing from happening that, you know, may or may not work. But because of all these one-star reviews and this backlash of people not wanting her to publish a book set in Russia during the Ukrainian war that's going on right now, she decided to pull her book months before it was supposed to come out. And she announced it on Instagram. That's where I saw it. She announced it on Instagram. I've never seen that happen before. Have you? No, it was puzzling. And I have to think it came down to her. I don't think Viking or her team were advising her to do that. I think she probably felt like, okay, this is upsetting people. And I have met her before. She's just a really kind human. And I think she was probably felt strongly about it. And her publisher respects her enough to say, okay, you can write something else. And we may or may not publish this later. I don't know if it will ever get published. Yeah, so that was one of my questions. Is this just sort of put on ice for now and we're going to get it? I don't know. Or is it, God forbid, like if she had worked on this for, you got to imagine she's worked on it for some years, right? And then all of that down the drain. I think it won't get published. I'm thinking she'll write something else. Interesting. And what happens from a contract perspective? When something like this happens? Well, if you're Elizabeth Gilbert, I don't think anything happens. <laughs> if you Does she have to give back her advance? Like, No, they wouldn't make her do that. I think if you're, if you're another author, you know, we have all, there are things in the contracts now, they're called morality clauses. And we have worked really hard, Sterling Lord, I should say, has worked really hard to make sure that no one has to pay back their advance. So, you know, they can cancel a book for any reason, which is the truth. Like the editor that buys the book could go to another company and then... Yeah, they could just say, we don't want to buy it. I mean, we don't want to publish it anymore. Yeah. So I think, yeah, there's no paying anything back, but they also want to keep her because she's talented and she has made them a lot of money. She has made them a lot of money. 
So you're saying if this were sort of a less well-known, successful author, that the not having to pay back the advance could possibly be different. It could possibly be different depending on their contract, or they could just say, we're not going to publish this book and we're not going to pay out your contract. Okay. Like you keep what we've already given you, but you don't get your, you know, there's always, you know, there's always a payment on publication or on paperback publication. So that wouldn't get paid out. And when somebody signs a contract, let's say you see in the news that a book gets published for, oh, a $500,000 deal, which is a big deal. Mm -hmm. You don't get all that $500,000 up front. You get a portion of it upon deal signing, a portion on publication. Yes. Now they do payments in quarters. It used to be you could still get payments in thirds. It's just harder to get now. So yeah, you're paying it out over a period of time. Okay. Well, I'll be interested to see what happens with that. It is surprising to hear that there was not a lot of behind the scenes chatter about that happening. There's not. And I think because it was, it really just came from her. Right. She felt strongly about it. She decided not to publish it. All right. This next story for me might've been the weirdest thing that happened this year, at least in my eyes. (laughs) (laughs) I can't wait. What I'm talking about is the BTS slash Taylor Swift book controversy. Wait, what is that? Wait, what? Did you not know about this? No. I mean, I know that they listed a secret book and everyone thought it was Taylor Swift. Is that? Oh, that's what you're talking about. So the publisher, it was Flatiron, announces that it has a secret release coming on July 9th. Which, by the way, we all knew it wasn't Taylor Swift. So the rest of the crazy Swifty world put together all these random clues. Oh, something, something about the number nine and some, one of her songs. I don't know, but there was all these kind of crazy connections that really hardcore Swifties made. They they thought this was a Taylor Swift memoir coming. And then like pre-orders go through the roof. And so I have talked to my friend who's an indie bookseller and she said their pre-orders went skyrocketing. And then the publisher had to actually forego their whole plan of this is going to be this secret thing that's going to be announced on release day or whatever. The marketing plan around the secret release had to be just thrown out the window. And so they had to come out and say what this book actually is. And what it was, was a (laughs) celebratory book for the 10-year anniversary of a South Korean boy band called BTS, which I had never heard of before this book controversy. Which, and let me say, their fan base, okay, maybe it's not quite as large as as Taylor Swift now, but they have a very rapid fan base. In the United States, too? In the United States, too. Okay. See, this is like way too young for me. I'm like old and decrepit to know about any of this. Oh, Oh, you would be surprised. It spans ages. Oh, okay. So I'm just out of it. I'm just out of the music scene. I don't know what I'm talking about. I mean, I would go to a BTS concert. Would you really? Yes. I don't listen to music ever either. I listen to just podcasts and audiobooks. But that book is interesting because it was sort of a coffee table book. Right. It was like a commemorative thing. It was $45. (laughs) So if it was more of a memoir book, I mean, I think it did sell a lot of copies. So that was going to be my question. Did all of this hubbub translate into sales or did they get the sales that they thought this big secrecy thing would warrant? I don't know if it met all of their expectations, but I mean, I looked up sales and it sold a large number of copies. Okay. For a coffee table book at $45. (laughs) That is an extremely high price point. And it'll probably sell more around Christmas because that's a gifty book. Yes. I think it probably did what they wanted it to do. What is the publisher thinking as they're sitting there watching pre-orders go through the roof? And like, what are those meetings like as they're trying to figure out how to handle this? I remember there being one day where people were like, everyone thinks it's a Taylor Swift book. I don't think they were thinking it's a controversy. Okay. See, I also heard that a lot of the pre-orders were canceled once people figured out what it was. Oh man, I missed the memo on this story. (laughs) I feel like there was like a, you know, a small little thing about it in our trades. And they probably made up those pre-orders with that BTS fan base. Probably. Yeah. Once people heard it was BTS. The secrecy behind it could have more to do with, they do this a lot with celebrity books. Yes. I knew that. 
Yeah, it's not so much to make people guess what it is. It's more about supply and demand. So I don't know if they really intentionally were trying to make it a surprise. It's a really good question. I will ask my friend who works at Flatiron. Oh, lovely. That would be amazing. I'll get you. I'll find some follow-up. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Let's do our over-under game. I'm excited about this. (laughs) Me too. I had fun when we did this last time in an impromptu way. All right. So I'm going to name a book and you tell us whether it performed over or under publishing's expectations. And the way that I chose these books was I picked some of the sort of big books of 2023 that have just been out there a lot. I picked some books that were big hits among my Patreon community. And then I picked some of my personal favorites. And Fourth Wing is off the table since we've already talked about that. Way over. (laughs) Yes. Way over is the answer. That's the answer. (laughs) BTS is off the table. Sold very well. Unclear whether it was over or under expectations. Exactly. All right. So first book. Chain Gang All-Stars, which is a National Book Awards shortlist nominee and was also the May Read with Jenna pick. I loved this book. I think possibly under only because it was one of those like industry darlings where everyone was like, this book is amazing and it got all these great reviews and I'm not sure it translated to sales. Yeah. No, I also don't think they paid some exorbitant amount for it. But I would say under just because I think it hasn't found all its readers yet, but maybe it will. Right. It's also a tough book from what I hear. I haven't read it, but I heard it's a very hard read. But it's brilliant. So so what I'm also trying to do a little bit here is suss out celebrity book clubs and awards, whether they matter in sales, right? I mean, and I will tell you that there are book clubs that seem to sell more than others in certain categories. Oh, so like what ones? Well, Reese books tend to do really well in the thriller category. Okay. But not when she picks a non-thriller. That's just sort of what I've seen in the past year. Okay. And then there are other book clubs that they always help. They always help. Sure. But if you are an Oprah pick, it doesn't matter what it is. It's going to sell a million copies. (laughs) She's sort of the gold star. She's the gold standard. She is more reliable for sales than Reese. She is. She is. Some of them aren't as reliable. That's right. Okay. All right. So this is a perfect lead into my next book, which is Yellow Face by R.F. Kuang, which I loved. Me too. That was a Reese pick and it's not, a th- uh, I was about to say it's not a thriller. It's not a thriller. Is that, it's a total genre mashup. It's a mashup. Yeah. It has some thriller elements. It has some thriller elements. I think over, I think people were nervous about this book and I loved it. And it has sold over 100,000 copies in hardcover. So I would say over. Okay. So when I read this, I rated this five stars. It's one of my favorite books of the year. Loved it. When I read it, I was like, huh, I wonder if anyone that is not connected to the publishing industry is going to get what she's doing or care about a lot of this sort of behind the scenes commentary that she included about the publishing industry and how it works. Sounds like it has translated. It has. I mean, my just town book club read it and loved it. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Asked me a lot of questions about publishing. So I'm like, there is still sort of a fascination with book publishing. Oh, I'm still, I mean, I I now know a lot of behind the scenes stuff and I'm still fascinated with learning more behind the scenes stuff about book publishing. Yeah. And it's usually more boring than you. But it's sometimes very surprising. I have been just shocked out of my seat sometimes at things I learned. Just I wouldn't have expected something to be a certain way, you know? Yeah. It's also on all of these end of year lists. So I think it's going to keep selling. Yes. And that is one of the, I think, rare books that is a critical darling and also appeals to regular readers. I agree. I agree. One more thing about Yellowface. What has the buzz been like within the publishing industry about all of the things that she sort of calls out in that book about publishing? The people who have read it are kind of adopted the same mentality you had, where they were like, I don't know, do people care about this? We care. We think it's spot on and interesting, but does everyone else? And I think the answer is yes. 
Is there any backlash about how dare she out all of this? No. Interesting. Okay. See, that's a little unexpected for me to hear. I think they were just nervous that maybe it wouldn't land with the regular general population. Right. I can see that. I felt the same way right when I read it, even though I loved it. All right. Next book, Pineapple Street by Jenny Jackson. You had told us, and I can't remember if it was in the bonus episode or in the main show the last time you came on, but that this book was sort of the book that publishing seemed to have a lot of weight behind for 2023. Has that panned out in sales? I think yes. I think expectations were met. Okay. It has sold really well. I think it will probably do really well in paperback. Yeah. It's kind of a light brain candy-ish book. Exactly. It was pushed. I mean, it was definitely given the full big plan and publicity and marketing plan, but people read it and liked it and passed it on. So yeah, I would say Matt. And I have said this already on the show, but I read it. I liked it. Did I understand why it got this massive push? No, I do not. (laughs) (laughs) To me, it seemed fine. Decently good. (laughs) Kind of one you want to stick in your beach bag. Yep. I mean, that's why I think in terms of like a paperback publication, it's going to have a whole new life. That makes sense. All right. Next one. We're going more under the radar here. This is a book that was huge in my Patreon community. I have not read it. I haven't read it either. It's heavier. It's a historical fiction, World War I novel, In Memoriam by Alice Wynn. That I did not see anywhere. I would say under because... I remember hearing about it and then crickets. So I'm not sure. I mean, I know that a lot of people within my very small reading bubble loved it. It was all over the place uh, in my Facebook group. Oh, so maybe it's one that needs to get more love. Yeah. Out in the broader community. Yeah. Under the radar book. Yep. You heard it here. All right. Next one. I have some questions for you by Rebecca Mackay. One of my personal favorites, also big in my Patreon community. She's a pretty big author, too. I think this one was probably performed how they thought it was going to. Okay. I mean, not at the level of great believers, but yeah, people were talking about this book, whether good or bad. That's true. That's true. It was a little bit divisive. Yeah. Could have done with a different title, in my opinion. We'll get to that. We're going to talk about titles a little bit later. Oh, interesting. I liked the title, but I also really liked the package for it. I loved the cover. I thought it was a great cover. Right. The title, it's too many words for me, and I mix them up, and it's hard to remember. Yeah, this book, I think what I heard the most about this book was that people couldn't figure out how to label it. I can see that. She's a very literary writer. Like, is it a thriller? Is it... Right. It's slower than a thriller. Mm -hmm. I would say it's literary crime fiction. Literary crime, crime fiction. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also a campus novel. I mean, it's a genre mashup. Right. Right. Is it like dark academia? Not really. Is it, is it a thriller? Not really. So good. And I think that's what I loved about it. I love genre mashups. Yeah. I liked it too. All right. I think we maybe now that you talked about Oprah's impact are going to know the answer to my next one. Oh my gosh. But Covenant of Water by Abraham Verghese. Way over. So it has sold over 300,000 copies since May. So for something that is a little bit more of a literary book, that is insane. And it's so long. But what's funny about this book is I feel like the reader who is recommending it to me is all older. Interesting. It's an older reader. It's your mother-in-law. But that also makes sense about the people that probably follow Oprah closely because that was back in the heyday when Oprah actually picked a book every month and her book club was huge, right? Maybe, but he has a huge fan base from his first book. Yes, that was huge. And I remember that was huge. I haven't read it. I want to go back and read that one now because it's- I haven't read it either. I need to read it. I need to read both of them. Well, it's shorter than Covenant of Water also. Yeah. So yeah, this book is doing really, really well. Just sitting on the times list. Let me tangent for a second. Does the page count of a book impact sales expectations for a publisher? Like if you have a book that is seven, 800 pages, do you take that into account when you're like, let me think about how much this book can sell? I think you take into account when you're pricing it. I mean, now- So it might be more expensive. It's going to be more expensive. Okay. 
that's the only time I ever hear about people talking about page count is that it's more expensive to produce. But wait, publishing doesn't talk about really long page counts from a reader perspective? They do. If you're writing a thriller and it's 150,000 words, then yes, I think your story is probably too long. Oh my gosh, this is so funny because the people I talk to about books, my reader crowd, we talk about the length of books all the time. You do? Yes. (laughs) We are like, this book could have had 100 pages cut. This one's so long, I probably won't ever pick it up. Long books are a deterrent for you guys. Yes. Oh, 100%. Okay, that's interesting. Wait, so back behind the doors of publishing, these conversations don't happen? I mean, they are happening. It depends on the book. This is so interesting. A lot of it is authors or artists. And if they think their book needs to be that long, they have final say. They do? Yes. So the editor can't be like, no, you have to cut 100 pages? To a certain point, yes. But they're not like, they're not looking at word count as much. Okay. Well, this kind of explains everything, actually. Because sometimes we will all talk and we'll say, where are the editors? I mean, they are there, but it is a service business. But the end customer is the reader. Right. Right. But the editor is servicing the author. Well, this is interesting. So you buy a book and you know what you're getting and you have conversations like, look, that's a little bit too long. And there are authors who work really well with editors and take editorial advice. And there are authors who don't. Yes. We have been made aware of that. Where every word is precious. Yeah. Especially maybe more established authors are more lightly edited. I mean, yeah. Stephen King is not cutting his book. Anne Patchett, she's going to publish what she wants. Yep. She is. Her books tend to be reasonable length though. She actually doesn't really write long books. (laughs) I like a nice 320 to 350 pages. I never, as a reader, just don't pay attention to page count, but I read a lot of fantasy that's, I'm used to reading long books. But also, I think that a fantasy novel versus like a 800-page literary novel, a fantasy novel probably moves faster. Yes. No, I think they're having those conversations depending on what the book is. Well, that was interesting. Okay, good tangent. All right. The Vaster Wilds by Lauren Groff. Well, I mean, I read anything Lauren Groff writes. I'm obsessed with her. I would say this one probably under, but it might win an award, so you never know. Might it? Didn't it get shut out of National Book Award nominations? Oh, I guess it wasn't nominated for the National Book Award because she's won it. No, because there was a lot of talk about like how could this have not been nominated. I still think it will be on all of the end of the year lists. Yes, I agree. I will say I think the pitch was a hard one. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know whose fault. It, it was no one's fault, but it was a hard pitch. It doesn't sound up my alley at all. I'm sure it's brilliant. I haven't read it yet, but. She's hit and miss for me, but among my Patreon community, a lot of people have loved it. Right. But the pitch was, I still couldn't tell you exactly what this book is. It's something like a girl gets lost in the era of Jamestown and she's sort of surviving in the wild. Yep. A young girl. That's all I know about it. And it's written in the style of the times, which is the big reason for me that that's not going to work for me. All right. Another book that got shut out of the National Book Award nominations and people were like, how could this book not have been nominated is Let Us Descend by Jasmine Ward. Oh, right. I mean, she's a, such a star and an open pick. So <laughs> I think expectations fully met. Oh, it was an Oprah pick. That was very recent. Yes, you're right. So whatever sales have done, they're going to shoot through the roof because of Oprah, probably. Right. It's been on the bestseller list. Okay. So it's done. Expectations are better. And also, she is one of those authors that any publisher will be happy to keep on their list. Oh, yeah. I mean, what what has she won the National Book Award twice already? Maybe that's why she wasn't nominated. What about Tom Lake by Ann Patchett? Oh, I'm reading it right now. It's so good. I think it's selling much better than her last title. Really? Because the Dutch House did really well. I think it's, you know, it hasn't been out for very long, but it's done really well. So I would say over. Okay. Good to know. All right. Wellness by Nathan Hill. Which I haven't read, but I did look up the sales and it didn't do very well. Did not. Okay. So that's interesting for me because among my Patreon community, lots of people are loving wellness. Oh, well then I should read it. I tried. He goes on a lot of tangents. Oh, this is the one you DNF. One of the ones I DNF, yeah. 
Hello Beautiful by Ann Napolitano. That was an Oprah pick. I mean, way over. We're seeing a trend. <laughs> okay, way over. And publishers weren't expecting that one to do what it's done. No, I don't think so. Okay. I loved that one. That's one of my favorites of the year. I think it was universally loved. Yes. One of my other favorites of the year. This is pretty new, so it might be hard to. Happiness Falls by Angie Kim. Oh, that was a divisive book. Yes, very much so. I would say under. It was everywhere. Yep. It was a GMA pick. Maybe it will pick up. When did it come out? It was late August, I believe. Okay, so maybe it will pick up. But for now, I think under. I I have not read, so I can't speak to it. But I loved it. It was a harder book than Miracle Creek, her debut. There's a lot of psychology and sort of some math in there. And I loved it. But I know it's been divisive. Yeah. I think it's probably not for every reader. Correct. Definitely not. What about Shark Heart by Emily Haybeck? The weirdest book in the world. (laughs) I don't know what expectations were for that book. It was a debut. It was a debut. It's a weird book. I can't think they were very high. No, so unclear. Has it sold well? It has not sold well. Really? Okay, because that is another book that my community loves. And I loved it too. Believe me, you know me. I don't do super weird. It, It has... Not sold like gangbusters, no. So that was a book of the month pick. Does book of the month drive sales a lot? Yes. So they take, you know, a number of copies that are not returnable. So it's great for the author. Oh, yes. Because when indie bookstores buy books to stock, they can return books that they don't sell. In Barnes & Noble. Right. And Barnes & Noble. Yes. Not just indies. Any bookstore. Any bookstore. So we love a book of the month pick. And it's good publicity. Like if it's out there and you know they're promoting it and readers are talking about it, it means usually like something like 30,000 copies. All right. Two last quick books and then we'll get on to trends. Spare and The Woman in Me. And I know they both sold gangbusters, but did they under or overperform what was expected of them? And Brittany is going to be a tough call because it just came out. Just came out. I would say Spare is over. I mean, it has sold over a million copies. Okay. I think with these kind of celebrity books, you don't know how much press they're going to do when you buy it. He did a lot. And he did a lot. And people were interested. So yeah, that book did really well. So Brittany sold 1.1 million in the first week. Not as well as Harry. Michelle Obama's Becoming outsold her, and Barack Obama's A Promised Land outsold her. But she's number four in the first week as far as celebrity memoirs. How's that versus publisher expectations? I mean, good for her. I love Britney Spears. (laughs) Are you going to read this? Yes. I listened to it on audio. Was it good? I thought the story was heartbreaking, and she illuminated a lot I thought the book itself seemed like they handed her a timeline of the big PR events in her life and said, expand on each one of these events and slapped it into a book. Mm-hmm. Well, there were several different authors. I knew that. I, yes. And actually, the first ghostwriter she had, Ada Calhoun, I have read and loved two of her books. Okay, I think they planned to have these different authors. Oh, they did. Interesting. Why would they do that? I'm not sure. I think they just had different authors writing different parts of her life. Oh, okay. Interesting. Because I had read that she thought the first pass at it by Ada Calhoun didn't quite capture her voice. That's really interesting. I had thought because it was it had taken so long to write. How long has she been working on this? A while. So people had different, you know, commitments that they had to I don't think any authors got fired. I think just people signed on. Interesting. Well, we'll have to see what the tale is like for Miss Brittany. And y'all, for my listeners, I am doing a spoiler discussion about The Woman in Me, Brittany's memoir, with Susie for my Patreon community. So we're going to be recording that soon. And by the time this episode comes out, the Brittany spoiler discussion will already be available for patrons. All right. Bookish trends. I mean, I think the biggest trend we've already touched on, which is book talk books. Yes. And that, how long, how many years has that been the trend? It really seems to have exploded this year. Really? So more so than, I felt like the pandemic kind of started things. I think the pandemic did start things, but now I feel like there are a lot of 
self-publishing going on and then getting these big deals from publishers. So maybe it's just that finally publishers are paying attention. Okay. And what are publishers doing to capitalize on book talk? Well, they are buying a lot of these books right now and they are buying them in big deals now. So books that are self-published books that are taking off on TikTok. Right. Now, a lot of these with huge followings, I'm not sure will translate into huge sales. I think the book still has to be really good. So I'm skeptical of some of these big deals. Are you saying the book itself that's taking off on TikTok may not be great? Yeah, it may just like that may be where its home should have been. And does it need the big publishing treatment? I don't know. Are there any other big trends this year? I mean, I think, like I said before, that I feel like BookTok has showed us the underserved categories, which is romance. Yeah. Romance is doing really well this year. You know, romance was a category that when the mass market paperback went away, publishers stopped investing in romance. But now, you know, readers readers are telling us that's what they want. And publishers are listening, which is great. And publishers are listening. What do you think are some current big trends that you think are on their way out, that they've been overdone? Well, another one we talked about, romanticy. I feel like that is getting so saturated. Oh, so this is funny because me, somebody who doesn't live in the fantasy world, I never heard the word romanticy until Fourth Wing came out. Oh, really? Yes. So I feel like there have been, even before Fourth Wing, way before Fourth Wing, a ton of series, romantic series. And I think a reader like yourself or any you know commercial reader will read a couple of bad ones and then move on. Yeah. Well, that's the problem. Right. Fourth Wing is a good one, but you're going you're gonna to then be like, okay, what's life Fourth Wing? And then pick something up and then be like, oh, I actually don't like this. I just liked the one that did it really well or the one that did it first. Right. It's like the Gone Girl problem. Right, right. Every book is then compared to Gone Girl and then you're disappointed. Yeah. And then all the copycats, the Fourth Wing copycats, which I'm sure are to come. Oh, yes. You know, we'll never, we'll never be as good as the original. Right. Educated. Is another one. Right. Girl on the train. Right. All of that. So a couple trends that I've noticed and I would love your thoughts on. I'd mentioned earlier titles. I have a bone to pick <laughs> <laughs> about titles these days. I feel like there's a trend towards really long titles with lots of little words strung together in an order that can be moved around with no problem. Oh my gosh. I'm going to need examples because I feel like... All of the thriller titles are short, like the Lucy Foley, the Jane Harper. Those are short. Especially, I think Jane Harper, it's like two words, the dry, right? So I have some questions for you is my first one. And I loved that book. And actually, some of these titles are for books I loved. That's a wordy title. I agree. It's a wordy title. And I can't remember them. And if I can't remember them, and I'm talking about these books all the time, what about everybody else out there? (laughs) So All That Is Mine, I Carry With Me by William Landay. Oh, gosh. Yes. Who can remember that? No, a million little words. And I cannot. I interviewed him. He's lovely. I loved the book. It's one of my favorites of the year. He wrote Defending Jacob. But also, I also know he might not have chosen that title too, because a lot of times authors don't get to choose their titles. Well, they do. They do? Yes. I think they absolutely have final veto power. Oh, okay. This is interesting. Because I've heard some authors be like, well, I, I have no say in the title. Well, I think a lot of times if an author presents a publisher with five really terrible titles, they eventually probably give up. But <laughs> <laughs> Right. But most of the time it is the author coming up with the title. Okay. So that's interesting. In Light of All Darkness by Kim Cross, which is actually a true crime book, but... I mean, that is a very hard title to remember. Light, darkness, what? Yes. It's about the polyclass case, which is easy to remember. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I just feel like we could have gone somewhere different with that. Again, a book I loved. And then another book I loved, You Could Make This Place Beautiful by Maggie Smith. Oh, yeah. That's kind of a mouthful of a title. I feel like titles should be memorable. And I feel like these are very easy to forget or get mixed up or remember one word that's in it, but not the others. 
Well, I tend to not remember titles that have something like I or you or me. Yes, that's a great point. Or she lies beneath something like that. There's, I feel like 7,500 books that are some variation on that. Yes. Well, and then there's a lot of books that just all sound the same. Yes. So why is that? Do publishers kind of look at this and they're like, oh, these books are selling well, so let's title it similarly or a similar style of title? Sometimes, but I mean, I think you will find that, I mean, I remember being an assistant and getting out a thesaurus (laughs) to come up with new words. You're trying to find something that hasn't been used, which is tougher than than it seems. Yeah. So are they just tacking on words now to find something that's not used? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe. But then, and then weirdly, you'll find one year there'll be a bunch of books with the word house in the title or girl or mother. Yeah. Or the character's full name. Or the character's full name. Okay. So yeah, there are like micro trends that happen with titles. Yeah. The current micro trend is difficult for me. I don't know if they're planned. I don't know if they're they're not really planned. It just tends to happen. That's one that I could use being on the way out. Yeah. It would make my job easier. That's for sure. I get on the air and I try to remember these titles. I'm like, wait a second. No. And even if it's written in front of me, which it generally is, sometimes I still mix them up. And then the, you know, the titles that are really weird that are probably memorable, they don't always get past committee. Oh, really? I mean, I'm surprised that Yellowface made it past. Interesting. Why is that? Because it's just, you know, it's it's unusual. It is, but I remember it. I never have trouble remembering that one. You remember it. Exactly. Exactly. Shark Heart. I never have trouble remembering that. All right. Is the publisher calendar shifting? And what I mean by that is I used to feel like August was generally dead. Now August seems to be hopping. And when I say dead, I mean as far as the amounts of new releases that are being published or new releases that are getting marketing dollars, that kind of stuff. I felt like August seems to be hopping. It is maybe now considered part of fall and July seems to be a lot more dead than it used to be. Oh, that's interesting. I always feel like July is the worst month to publish into. Why is that? I think people are on vacation and it's quiet. I agree. I think I read one July release this year. Yeah. It's just, it's a quiet time for bookstores. There's not a lot of foot traffic. It's not a great month. That's the only month that I'm ever like, Ooh, please don't put it in July and please don't put it in December. Yeah. I agree about December. There's a one particular author who I love and she kept getting a December publication date for her debut and her sophomore novel. And I was like, Oh God, publisher, please help her out. Yeah. That's the only one where I will go to a publisher and say, yeah, can we move this or give us a good reason? Why? I think that's smart. Yeah. And sometimes sometimes they do have a good reason. But I do think you're right that a lot of books are, the fall season is starting earlier. It's creeping. Well, do you think also it could be because schools are creeping earlier and earlier as far as when they open? I think it is just trying to avoid competition. Oh, interesting. Okay. So you have, you know, the Stephen Kings and the Grishams coming out in October and you want to give some space to your debut novel. Yeah. And I tend to like books that are coming out in August better than I like all the October releases. Yeah, a lot of those are not like series authors usually. Yeah, that they're not the like dense high literary fiction and they're not the 800 page books. Right. And also I feel like November used to be a lot more dead than it is now. Oh gosh, a lot of books are publishing in November now. I know. Is that that new or has it always been that way? I can only speak for my books, but yes, I have some books publishing in November this year, which I feel like people used to avoid, but then, you know, maybe they're also moving up some of the heavy hitters to earlier in the fall. That makes sense. They're just trying to balance it out. So you, you know, you're not in the same week as some huge bestselling. Lauren Groff. <laughs> Although that didn't sell that great. So. Or like Lee Child. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I, yes. Understandable. All right, let's look forward a little bit and then get into your favorite books of the year. Okay. What are some trends we should expect in 2024? This was fun to think about because I was looking at all my colleagues and what they've sold and all the deal reports that we get. I think rom-com thrillers. I love that. Are going to be a thing in 2024. We need to think of a word for it like romanticy. Like r- 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 thriller. No, this, that doesn't work. <laughs> no, that doesn't work. Romer. 
<laughs> no, I don't love that. We'll have to think on this, but I love the idea of that. Yeah. Rom-com thrillers, feel-good books, lots of feel-good books. And then I think I'm seeing more magical realism. Interesting. Okay. Sort of trickling into deals, which is which is fun. And you had said the last time you came on that magical realism was something publishers were a little scared of. So let's just say they are. But <laughs> but they're getting less scared? I think they are less scared with the Midnight Library. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. Books like that. And like Addie LaRue. Right. Mm-hmm. I did hear somewhere that, and I, th- I think it was on a podcast, I can't remember which one, that publishers are seeing some fatigue with really depressing, hard books that readers were reading for a while, and now there's some fatigue, which makes sense given you said a lot of feel-good books are coming. Right. And I don't know, those are the deals I'm seeing. I can't speak to what readers are feeling. Yeah, sure. Maybe you can. Ask your readers. I mean, I personally am feeling some fatigue. I can say that. Okay. All right. Let's talk about your top three books of 2023. And this was fun because we said before we started recording that 2022 might have been a better year. I had more favorites. I had more favorites in 2022. Yeah. For me personally, 2022 was a better year for my reading. Well, and I also might not be caught up because I get a backlog of books. But yeah. I was thinking about my top three, and then I was like, oh, wait, that book published in 2022. Oh, give me an example of that. Oh, well, I loved that book, Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone. I did too. I loved that book. It was 2022. Wait, no, it wasn't. It was early 2023. Are we sure? It came out in Australia first. Oh, well, then I'm wrong. No, because I read it in late 2022 as a galley for 2023 release. I read it as a galley too. I loved that book. That's a great book. And I'll be talking about that one more in my year-end episodes. Yeah, I think that's another trend we're going to see, like clever, but not cozy mysteries. Yeah, this was very clever. And I don't like cozy. Right. You know, a different kind of narrative device. Yeah. Okay, well, that would have been one of mine. Now, we, so we get a bonus one. You get a bonus one. So the first one, which if you haven't read, you need to read. It's Vera Wong's Unsolicited Advice for Murderers by Jessie Sutano. She is quickly becoming an autobi for me. I have interviewed her. You have? Yes. I loved Dial A for aunties. Do you follow her on Instagram? She's so funny. I do. She's hilarious. If you want to be put in a good mood, read this book. Okay. I will add that to my list. It's about a 60-year-old amateur detective solving a murder, but really butting into people's lives. And I just laughed out loud, like throughout the book. She's funny. She's a funny writer. She's a funny writer. This character, I just, we all need Vera Wong in our lives. And she generally ventures into the outlandish, but in a way that makes it tolerable, kind of in a... What's the Vegas movie where they had the tigers in the bedroom? Oh. Like that. Like that. Why can't I remember that? I can't either. Bradley Cooper. Yep. Anyway, that movie. (laughs) If you can handle the outrageousness of the plot of that movie, then... Yeah, it's absurd, but like lovable characters. Yes. Yes. All right. What is your second one? Okay, my second one, I'm trying to convince you to read more fantasy. I know. That's my mission. It's Emily Wilde's Encyclopedia of Fairies by Heather Fawcett. I've heard of this one as well. Oh my gosh. This one, I can't put into words how much I loved this book. It is set in the 1900s and the main character is a professor who studies fairies and she travels to this remote Scandinavian village and is followed by her academic rival. It's told in journal entries, and I love an epistolary novel. I do too. I love that format. You will love this. It is academic rivals to lovers plot with this like folklore backdrop and this prickly main character. I keep telling people it's Jane Austen with fairies. Oh, okay. Interesting. All right, number three. Number three, and this one I have recommended to a lot of people. So this is the book where I'm like, anyone's going to like it. It's Wayward by Amelia Hart. Yes, I've heard of this too. It's three alternating 
storylines, timelines of women in one family. And they're all sort of victims of these kind of terrible men who really get their comeuppance. And it's just a really good generational tale with magic. It's an Alice Hoffman type book. Oh, got it. I also feel like a little trend is the women who have been victimized by men turning the tables. Oh, yeah. 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 I feel like that's a little micro trend in books these days. Yep. I think so too. Which I can take that. Yeah. Promising young woman kind of situation. I think this book should get more love. That's sort of why I put it on there. Yeah. I do think it's a little bit of an underrated gem, but it has come up in my Patreon community. Oh, good. Oh, good. Yeah. Gothic and witchy and just a good read. Good fall book, y'all. Good fall book. Mm -hmm. All right, Sarah, this has been so fun. So fun. I love our good behind the scenes talks. Me too. I'm I'm trying to think if I left anything off. I didn't. Well, we've got the bonus episode. If you have left anything off the table. Okay. That's coming. (laughs) (laughs) All right, y'all. The November superlatives episode for patrons will air at the end of the month, and it will include Sarah's picks for categories like the biggest sleeper hits of the year, and the biggest bust of 2023. If you'd like to get this bonus episode and others, you can support the show on Patreon. There's a link in the show notes and in my Instagram bio. And in two weeks, which is December 13th, Susie and I will be back with the first of our two-part year-end episode series where we are going through 2023 superlatives. Talk to you in two weeks. Thanks so much for listening to Sarah's Bookshelves Live. You can find show notes with all the books mentioned in the episode, purchase links, and linked timestamps at sarahsbookshelves.com slash podcast. And that's Sarah with an H. You can also find me online at sarahsbookshelves.com, on Instagram at sarahsbookshelves, or via email at sarahsbookshelves at gmail.com.